Welcome back to Finest Hours, the show where we will share amazing true stories of human achievement and influence. I'm Braden Cromar, joined by my co-host Hayden Hansen and our executive producer, Skyler Williams. Hello, everyone. What's up? We are back after a few weeks. The holidays got into the mix here, but we are happy to be back and bringing you guys another great story. Another World War II story, actually. Our last episode was a World War II story as well. What was our last story? <laughs> you picked it. I can't even remember. It's been so long. Daniel, Daniel, Anoy. Daniel, Anoy. Anoy. How long has that been? It's been a month now. It's been three or four weeks. Yeah, that's my bad. Yeah, for the most part, it is. Yeah, it's mostly been my bad. <laughs> we're dropping in the rankings. Actually, I don't know if we are or not because uh, we were so high on them. That's all right. We're back. And we hope you had a good holiday season. Get ready for the sickest comeback in history. Is that us? That's us. All right. Well, we've got a we've got a really good story for you guys today, as promised on our last episode. Uh, today, we're taking you back to World War II in Great Britain. A ingenious man by the name of Christopher Clayton Hutton. So Hutton was born in 1904 in Birmingham in the United Kingdom. We didn't find a lot on his childhood, but when he was 20, 19 or 20 years old, living in Birmingham, his uncle owned a sawmill, and he wrote and challenged Harry Houdini, the famous escapologist and magician, to attempt more to... More of a wizard, really. More, you're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> to attempt to escape from a wooden box that was built by one of his uncle's carpenters. Houdini accepted the challenge, but only on the condition that he could first see the sawmill and meet with the carpenter tasked with building the box. Houdini did succeed, but he did bribe the carpenter that built the crate to use false nails. But this wasn't known to the audience at the time, and the feat fascinated Hutton with the art of escapology and it would prove a very interesting part of his life to include in his resume as he moved forward with his military service. But we'll get into that later. Houdini became famous, and the carpenter was fired. <laughs> Just kidding, we actually don't know. We don't know anything about the But what an end. He probably wasn't fired. But yeah, Houdini was massively famous at the time, and obviously still is. But he cheated. Uh, yeah, always. There's always tricks behind magic. You have to get creative with your solutions and escapology. Now, Christopher Clayton Hutton served in World War I as well. He was in the British Army and would later serve in the Royal Air Force upon its establishment as a staff captain. And airplanes were not widely used in warfare until World War I, and a formal air force didn't even exist at the time. Following World War I, Hutton worked a variety of jobs, including jobs in reporting and the film industry as well. Now, at the dawn of World War II, 
Hutton was recruited by MI9, which is a British intelligence agency, and he was tasked with training servicemen to evade capture or how to escape if they were taken prisoner. Now, later in the war, he was tasked with assisting the escape of Allied prisoners of war. Over the course of the war, over 230,000 Western Allied soldiers were taken prisoner by the European Axis powers, which were Cromar? Germany, Hungary, Romania, Italy, Canada, <laughs> Canada, and Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so most were imprisoned in ca- camps in eastern Germany and Austria, deep behind enemy lines. So making it hard for them to escape and for them to send battalions and stuff like that to go and retrieve their prisoners of war. Um, really inconsiderate of them. I know. How could? Why would they think so logically about that? Terribly inconsiderate. <laughs> um, under the Geneva Convention. Prisoner of war camps were required to allow relief packages from the soldiers' home countries to be distributed. Aid packages were inspected by camp officials. So Hutton, being tasked with assisting these POWs to escape, had developed some pretty ingenious concealments. A lot of his concealments included flying boots that had heels that were hollowed out that could hold knives, maps, uh, compasses, and files. And they can also be transformed back into civilian shoes. You know, I get all of that and how they would hide the stuff, but how did they make the boots fly? <laughs> pilots. These are airmen that they're rescuing. So pilot, pilot boots, part of their pilot uniform. They weren't, they weren't flying boots, <laughs> which would have been pretty cool, but... They put wings on them and then flew The first time the I did read through that, I was like, now that's pretty clever. You can fly the boots into camp, deliver the stuff, and then they can wear them out. How do you make boots fly? Yeah, I mean, you've seen it. You've seen wings on shoes before. How did they transform them into civilian shoes? I don't know. Did they just, like, cut off some leather? I don't make know. Them I, don't know what they, I don't know what they looked like. I couldn't find anything, but... These concealments were all discovered by German POW camp officials and never made it to the men. They also included some things like a telescope that was disguised as a cigarette holder and compasses that were so small that they could be hidden on the back of buttons on uniforms. But all of these were eventually discovered. With the exception of one particularly creative concealment, Monopoly board games. Monopoly was originally created to assist in the escape of prisoners of war. Just kidding. That's not true. (laughs) That is not true. (laughs) Monopoly was actually made by Parker Brothers in the United States, but it became an international hit. So it made its way to into the UK in 1935. And so a printing and packing company called John Waddington limited licensed the game. Waddington limited had coincidentally perfected the process of printing on silk. And so they perfected that while printing silk playbills for the royal family. And during the war, they would print silk maps and sew them into airmen's uniforms. Now, the importance of printing on silk was that hiding silk was a lot easier than hiding paper because it didn't rustle, uh, the ink wouldn't smudge if they got wet. And so these maps were a lot easier to sneak in and they were a lot easier to maintain. And so Hutton recognized the coincidence, and he knew that the games were allowed into the prisoner of war camps. 
And so he seized this opportunity to create an all-in-one escape kit. And so a full Monopoly kit would eventually be enough to conceal silk maps, a small compass, a saw, a file, and actual cash. They would include like French currency, German currency, Swiss currency. It was pretty cool. And but they would most hide importantly, it with the real with the fake money in the kit. Most importantly, they would include that Monopoly money so they didn't get caught. <laughs> yes, they didn't just print wads of different cash and throw them in. They had mixed them with the with the fake cash in the Monopoly kit. <laughs> the Germans immediately saw the American bills and thought, oh, this looks like fake cash. So they didn't worry <laughs> about it one bit. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't include American bills. <laughs> That's unfortunate. How are you supposed to provide them hope? What are you Don't worry, do it's a joke. If, <laughs> if you're stranded in Germany, what are you going to do with an American dollar? Make it home so I can spend it. <laughs> anyway, back on topic. In March of 1941, good old Chris discussed his plan with the company's chairman, Victor Watson. Not to be confused with John Watson. Who's John Watson? Who's also British. Yeah, but who is that? Sherlock Holmes. Oh, his first name is John? I think so. I could be wrong. <laughs> I just said that. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should check that. Maybe we should fact check that before we put it we'll in. Fa- we'll fact check ourselves. I thought you were going to say, I, had, I thought you were going to say, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's a British name. Just it sounds British. John Watson. Um, so who, let's see. So Victor Watson offered his full support of the project. Watson put a few men to work on the project. The men used cookie cutter like dies to punch small compartments into the boards which had a width of one eighth of an inch they would then glue the board decal over the top when the board was finished it was indistinguishable from a standard monopoly board pop quiz does anybody know the width of a monopoly board today one One eighth of an inch boom cromar got it yep i shrunk down I read, by the way, we're getting a lot of this from a really good article on mental floss, which we'll, of course, cite at the end of the episode. But now that he had these kits created, his challenge was now getting them into the POW camps. And he couldn't sneak them in with the Red Cross packages or packages sent by POW's family members for fear that if the Germans were to discover them, that they would cut off these delivery packages from family members so you're saying he definitely could have but well, it would have been in poor taste he could have, but he knew that it was best not to uh he also knew that there were organizations that were voluntarily sending recreation packages to prison of war camps and these would include things like chess boards sports equipment just things to keep the soldiers entertained and relatively comfortable So he did something really cool. He set to work creating fake organizations from which to send their escape kits using addresses of bombed out buildings and creating fake letterheads. That just sounds like an elaborate tax evasion ploy. Oh, this guy was elaborate. (laughs) He was super smart. One of the challenges that Hutton faced was getting the packages to the POWs, past all of the German guards who were going to be looking over everything extensively because they knew that they were trying to sneak stuff in. So they combed over it, and then it gets in the hand of a prisoner of war who probably believes it's been combed over and it looks so, you know, typical of a Monopoly board that they're not thinking they're going to look into it. And so these prisoners of war were then trained 
um, to search for the escape tools. So Hutton used quotes and the letters that he hoped would provide clues. So he would write Bible verses like uh, the one from Matthew chapter seven that said, ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. So he would leave clues like that in the letters coming from these uh, companies. So if you had a Monopoly game come from a company you've never heard of on a letterhead with a letter that talked about, you know, ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find. Well, that means that you're supposed to dig into this thing. Who are and they so, going to ask? <laughs> you know exactly who they're going to ask, Skyler. They were going to ask the German camp officials. <laughs> they're like, How would, what's in here? They'd be like, hey, do you have a pen knife I can borrow? I need to open this thing. <laughs> a part of what Hutton also had to do was to train a couple members of the Air Force squadrons in writing coded messages to mom and dad, which would allow Hutton to then communicate with prisoners of war. And so that way they could modify the escape packages that they were sending in as needed. So you don't always know where people are going to be sent. You don't know what they're going to need. And so the best people who know their own needs are the prisoners. And so they were able to communicate back with Hutton to get the items that they needed most. And the way that they would do this is actually kind of cool. It would just depend on how they wrote the date in their letter and I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but if they spelled their the date out in a certain way, MI9 would be able to determine whether or not that was a real letter for their family or whether they were trying to contact MI9 to modify their escape kits. Dope. Super dope. So for security purposes, only a few prisoner of wars were trained and fully aware of the operation. Most didn't know how the tools were getting into the camps. Phil left out real real quick right there the operation wasn't going to be a success if too many people knew about it you know loose lips sink ships the more people that know about this operation the more vulnerable it is and so it was really kept under lock and key really well so when the american forces joined the war hutton trained the americans on his plan but because the americans didn't have a factory manufacturing these kits for them they sent civilian clothed military personnel into game stores where they would purchase monopoly games steam off the decal and cut their own compartments for tools they'd then reseal the boards and send them out parker brothers had no idea that any of this was happening no clue that their boards were being used to help free pow's from straight the up European copyright theater. infringement <laughs> It's wartime. Who cares? <laughs> the Parker what's, Brothers. what's interesting is we've talked about how this was never discovered by the Germans. The only reason it was ever brought to light was because enough years had passed that they declassified the documents that talked about it. Yeah. And so they didn't find out for what, 40, 50 years or something. It was yeah. a long time. It was a long time. Yeah. They kept a lot of it under lock and key. And there's probably a lot that still hasn't been declassified, but um, you know, it was a really cool, really cool story. Uh, Philip Orbanes, a Monopoly historian, and yes, that's a real thing, estimated that at least 744 men had escaped German POW camps using these escape kits. Uh, one particular instance, um, an American lieutenant, David Bowling, was imprisoned 100 miles southeast of Berlin and was ordered by a commanding officer in the camp to use this escape kit to flee and to deliver an important message to the Allied command. The leaders imprisoned in the camp had learned that the Nazi SS were attempting to take control of the camps from the Luftwaffe, 
uh, the German Air Force. And with the war turning against Germany, upon gaining control of the camps, the SS were to execute all of the prisoners. So they needed to get this information over to the Allied command as soon as possible. What a bunch of sore losers. <laughs> this, yeah, this was a, a sad thing about World War II and other wars that this happened pretty often. Um, so Bowling, he had actually spoke German pretty well and was able to use the tools and money provided in the escape kits to flee Germany and into neutral Switzerland, where he was able to contact the Allied command and relay the message of the SS execution order. Doesn't seem like Switzerland's very neutral when they're helping him out. <laughs> Switzerland was sketchy. Switzerland Still is. was super sketchy. Swiss. I like Switzerland, though. Switzerland was not <laughs> as neutral as... Mexico they had seemed Switzerland made a lot of money off of World War II. Still do. <laughs> they don't still make money <laughs> off of World War II. Interest, baby. Compounding. Switzerland was Switzerland was not that neutral. They purchased a lot of Nazi gold and built up their gold reserves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, I'll get off. I'll get off my my Swiss bashing here. Um, box. And there there were other stories of there were other stories of POWs using the kits to escape, but a lot of them were kept under lock and key. A lot of the documents were burned after the war, and it was one of the best kept secrets of World War II. I've had a week and a half off of work and I've been watching World War II documentary after World War II documentary and it's been glorious. That's it, folks. Thanks for joining us on our show. If you liked it, and even if you didn't like it, please rate and subscribe and review because we would appreciate it. Yep, we sure would. And it helps us keep the show going if you like it. And if you don't like it, just throw us a bone anyway. That's going to do it for us this week, and we'll come back with you in a couple weeks. Really, we actually mean a couple weeks. We'll get back on a regular cadence again with another true story. As the British say, hasta la vista. Hasta la vista. (laughs) 